Hello and welcome to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing podcast. My name is Dr Andrew Trasilla and I work for Somerset CCG and my colleague is... Peter Bagshaw, Somerset GP and also on the CCGO's Mental Health Lead. Great. Um, and today we're talking about a deep dive into depression, um, Peter, and this is a really important topic for a lot of people. And I suppose before we start, we probably ought to work out or try and define what depression is and what depression is not. Have you got any thoughts on that? I have, but I think they're imperfect. So to me, it, it's a, a spectrum. And I, I think it's wrong to say to somebody, you have not got depression, uh, if we think they've got low mood. I think the, the one thing that, that stands out that's a big feature of depression, I don't know if you agree, is anhedonia, this, this inability to enjoy things that we would normally enjoy doing. What, what are your thoughts? Andrew? No, absolutely. I think, I think you're right that there's a spectrum. And it's interesting how words change their meaning over time. When I trained in medicine 30 odd years ago, depression was not very common. Um, very often it was confined to people who, who might well be in hospital, in, in sorts of hospitals that aren't around anymore, um, asylums they used to be called, and others. But um, depression was very much a biological phenomenon where there was often loss of appetite, loss of weight, um, something we call, uh, so, so certainly mood would be low, um, and there would be something we would call diurnal variation of mood. So that would be where your mood was very low, possibly black in the mornings, and it would lift through the day. Um, concentration might be um, very poor. Um, sleep could be disturbed. And, um, uh, and other phenomena such as, and I've forgotten one, it was just going to come to me, um, Oh, what was it? Retardation, where somebody is actually moving very, very slowly. And so that would be classic of a retarded depression or an agitated depression where uh, many of the same things, the weight loss, the, the anhedonia, the inability to feel happy at all, um, uh, and, and a level of agitation. And so that was the sort of the, that, that was what depression was 30 years ago. But I suppose nowadays that would be the severe end of a spectrum, which actually is very different, Peter. Absolutely. Um, so I think a lot of people will not have any of the things that you've mentioned, but can still be severely depressed. And I think we recognise that that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there are huge numbers with depression. As you say, it was often thought of as a fairly rare disease, but they've done studies recently showing, for instance, that one in five uh, over 65s have clinical depression, doubling if somebody has a comorbid uh, coexisting illness, and trebling if they're in a nursing home or a hospital. So it's an incredibly common condition. And it's also an incredibly difficult condition. They, I remember a while ago, there was a study where people who were unfortunate enough to have had both cancer and depression were asked, if you could get rid of, of one of these two awful conditions, which would you rather live without? And almost universally, people said, I will live with the, the cancer if I can get rid of my depression, because it takes over your whole being, doesn't it? That's very interesting. It can really flatten your ability to cope with life. Now, Peter, is depression something that varies from day to day? So you'll be fine for several days and then, then you feel depressed for three or four days or two or three days and, and then you're fine again? Or is, is that 
reaction to life circumstances? Is that the blues? I, I would say that's more typical of the blues. So moderate to severe depression, that you can't uh, get out of it. And, and certainly if, if we know somebody who's depressed, the, the worst thing you can say to them is, oh, snap out of it or get over it or, or those sort of things that, that people sometimes say. Because if you've got depression, you simply can't get yourself out of it in that way. We'll come on short to some of the, uh, the techniques that people can use to improve things, but it's not simply a switch that people can flick on and off. They can hide it. Yeah. They can mask how they feel. So we don't always know if somebody is severely depressed, but that, that's not to say that that's how they're feeling inside. And I suppose my last question would be about what depression is. Is misery the same as depression, or is misery something that's, that can happen um, as a result of life experiences? And how long do you have to be miserable continuously before before it actually actually it's, it, it becomes depression? I suppose I'm, I'm a little bit against these labels because they're often man-made, and I'm not sure that you can say, oh, if you have misery for more than four days, you're depressed. It, it doesn't seem as black and white as that. Um, I think there is still some validity in saying that there are there's depression that's primarily biologically, genetically determined. It just seems to be something in our nature. And depression that occurs as a reaction to outside events. Uh, and, and those probably are helped in slightly different ways. The first one is slightly more likely to get better with pills, and the second one's slightly more likely to get better with talking therapists. But there's a huge overlap, isn't there? Yes. So how do we diagnose depression? So let's say I come along to you as a, as a patient and, and I feel low. What, what, how, how would you work out whether I was depressed or not? Well, there are lots of uh, different scores uh, for depression, there, and you can go through this. There's, they ask various questions, but it boils down really to do you feel depressed? Do you feel low? Most people know what depression is like and, and are able to, to say if they feel that way or not. And then have you lost interest in the sort of things that, that normally you would enjoy? And if, they, if, if somebody says yes to both of those, and it's been for a significant length of time, probably they are depressed. And then as a clinician, you would then go on, if, if they seem to be depressed, to explore, have they got more severe features, such as thoughts of self-harm? Because we know that depression is unfortunately a, a significant link for self-harm and suicide. Um, it, it certainly is. And if we go back to when I was training and, and, and before then, um, we know that in the 1930s, before there were, were any good modern treatments at all for, um, for depression, that the mortality was quite high. And then I think one of the first biological treatments that came along was something called insulin coma therapy, which helped to a certain extent. But the first effective physical treatment for um, depression was something that's, that is still used, although not often, but there are some definite indications when it is important. And that was something called... Um, ECT or electroconvulsive therapy. Are you able to say anything about that? It's probably the thing that got me into medicine, certainly got me interested into the workings of the mind. So there's been quite a streak of depression within our family. I had a great uncle uh, who killed himself. And my aunt, a, a lovely lady, uh, every 10 years or so would become profoundly depressed uh, and and get the sort of things that you were describing earlier with 
uh, the retardation and simply not being able to function. And she would be tried on, on medication, and the med- medication improved each time she got episodes of depression. But actually, the only thing that got her better was being admitted for electroconsultative therapy. So it, it sounds a barbaric thing, but actually, for her, it was life-saving. And one of my earliest memories as a child is visiting her in Barrow Hospital, where she was having uh, electroconvulsive therapy. How interesting. I remember my grandmother, who was a very um, um, upbeat, um, can-do farmer's wife in her early retirement, having looked after, I think, her mother for about 15 years. Her mother had a stroke and Nana looked after her at home. Uh, And she became... She drifted into a state, and I sort of remember this as a young teenager, where all she could do was sit on the sofa and and cry. And after several weeks of this, I think she must have seen a psychiatrist and she was admitted. And she did very, very well for for ECT. And I think she was on lithium for the next 20 years. And so I wonder if that was a sort of a bipolar depression that she'd had, but it was just the sort of the unipolar aspect of it. And she had had a biological depression. And I don't think we should get too hung up on, on these definitions, but certainly it used to be called manic depressive psychosis, didn't it? Um, but bipolar depression very much is at the, the biological end of the spectrum. And as you say, as, say, does particularly well with lithium and other mood stabilizers. I'm, I'm interested, Andrew, in your thoughts. Um, we're, when we're talking about anxiety, we're talking about how it arises as a natural state uh, and was actually protective of us when we were in different circumstances. Do you have any thoughts on why we are prone to depression? Because it's such a, a terrible thing to have. It's hard to see any upside to it, isn't it? Um, it it's really difficult, um, Peter. I don't really know why human beings should... F- if I say should find, I don't think any of us cognitively, deliberately find depression to be useful, but it must have an evolutionary benefit. Have you got any ideas on that? Well, I've, I've read work that at times when, for instance, we were uh, facing starvation or, or the external environment is very difficult, but shutting down is quite a good way of getting through that. And I remember a few years ago when there was this awful tragedy where uh, I think it was a sewing machine factory collapsed, didn't it? Um, and they found people survived far longer than they expected because they shut down. So I think depression can be seen as a, a way of, of shutting down. The, the other thing I've read is, is that it's simply the necessary opposite to happiness. And that if we, if we weren't able to feel depression and, and misery and unhappiness, we wouldn't be able to experience happiness. But I don't yeah. think anyone's got the whole idea answer to that, do you? No, uh, so, certainly it's not necessarily anything anyone one of us would choose to have. So there's an idea there that it may be a sort of emotional hibernation. Um, but one of the things that we, we often feel when we feel depressed is that we feel that it's our fault or that it's guilty. And in fact, the questions that, uh, that, that we might be asked if we go and see the doctor are, over the last two weeks, have we been bothered by any of the following? And the questions are, little interest or pleasure in doing things, that's the anhedonia you mentioned, feeling down, depressed or hopeless, trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much, uh, feeling tired or having little energy, poor appetite or overeating. But here comes the guilt one, feeling bad about yourself or feeling that you're a failure 
or have let yourself or your family down. And that's quite characteristic of, 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 of aspects of depression. The next question is trouble concentrating on things such as reading the newspaper or watching the television. Um, and the next one is about agitation or re retardation, moving or speaking so slowly that other people could have noticed, or the opposite, being so fidgety or restless that you've been moving around a lot more than usual. Uh, and finally, really quite an important hallmark of, of depression, although there are other reasons why people might say yes to, the, to some of these, is thoughts that you would be better off dead or of hurting yourself in some way. And so those might be the, the questions that, that we're, we're asked if we see a professional. Absolutely. And I think it's important to explore those difficult thoughts. As, as professionals, we're, we're sometimes taught to be, to be a little bit careful about discussing these things, but I, I think it's important to explore things. The other thing that I, I see in practice, which I'm sure you do, is that people feel that they will never get better, that how they are now is how they will always be. And you will say to them, look, there are these really effective therapies, whether it's talking therapies or drug therapies, and they will, they will have no expectation that they can be helped by these. That seems to be part of depression as well. So the other thing that happens with, with depression as a mental health issue is that we lose insight into our own state and we feel undeserving or worthless and we, we feel that we can't be helped. So what are the helps? What are the therapies that work? Well, this is the good news, isn't it? That it is something that is absolutely something that can be helped. So I, I think we ought to talk about uh, talking therapies first, certainly for, for mild to moderate depression. Those would be the, the things that we would go to first. And I know we've talked in previous episodes about cognitive behavioural therapy, um, basically learning to be mindful, learning to uh, to use our, our cognitive, our reasoning side uh, to say that this misinterpreting as everything as, as being black and negative uh, is not necessarily how it really is. So, Peter, depression, what therapies are there? Um... The good news is that uh, against patients' expectations, treatments for depression are extremely successful. We would always start, especially with mild to moderate depression, with talking therapies. That's widely available. We've discussed it before, uh, either through uh, Somerset Talking Therapies or uh, the Mental Health Worker or uh, Secondary Care. And CBT, Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, is the, is the one that's got the most evidence behind working. I don't know if, if you want to discuss that in more detail or whether we've already gone over that or save it for another time. I think we'll, we'll see how we get on with time. But what sort of things um, should I be doing for myself if I'm feeling depressed as well as perhaps having talking therapies. For, so I've got mild to moderate depression. What else should I be doing? Well, it's interesting, isn't it, that there's a big overlap between depression and anxiety and exactly the sort of things that we've dis discussed in previous episodes that are helpful for anxiety are also helpful in depression, particularly moving around, being in nature, trying to focus outside rather than looking inside. And these are, these are given fancy names, but it's basically about doing things even though you don't feel like it. Andrew, you normally come in with some, uh, some exercises for us at this point. 
Well, we can certainly do some relaxation, but um, I was just thinking the sun happens to be shining outside. So if ever you find uh, the sun is shining and your mood is low, please go outside and, and enjoy it. And even if the sun isn't shining, if it's daylight, daylight often lifts our mood. And uh, uh, we know that those of us who live in northern climes actually on average, our mood is lower in the winter and it's better in summer. So we are seasonally affected as a species. So it's, it's worth going outside and, and doing that activity. Um, as regards depression, relaxation isn't necessarily always useful, but when we feel agitated, it, it can be useful. So I would just invite everyone a moment if they would like to, as long as you're not driving or, or using heavy machinery, to um, put your feet flat on the floor and to allow your spine to be comfortable. And the reason for this is so often we're driven on a bit of a bit of sympathetic drive, alert, 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 danger, 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 with adrenaline flowing around the system and just calming down that adrenaline by feet flat on the floor, spine comfortable and allowing ourselves to take three or four slow, regular, rhythmic, diaphragmatic breaths will allow us to just um, allow us to just uh, calm ourselves and notice gently how we feel and that is quite useful for calming anxiety and then if we notice that we haven't moved much and that we haven't um, looked outwards as you were mentioning just now peter then maybe we need to look outside ourselves look outside the window connect with nature connect with something outside ourselves in order to to lift our moods but absolutely it sounds trite but it really works doesn't it yes but peter what medication can help depression because that's important as well it's, uh, for some people particularly with more severe depression more biologically driven depression, uh, then medication is, is needed. Nowadays, the uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, are the drug of choice. And there are variants of that, SNRIs and so on. But they're all very similar. And unfortunately, the drugs available now are much better than 30, 40 years ago, when we had tricyclics that made you very drowsy, uh, very lethargic, and, and really had quite a lot of side effects. So... As a family, they're, they're similar. Um, some work better than others in different cases. So some are slightly alerting. So if you've got that sluggishness, that retardation that you talked about, those can be useful. Others are slightly more sedating. So if anxiety comes along with depression, those drugs are more useful. I think the, the one thing to say about all of them is that they take at least a fortnight to kick in. So people will not take them and feel instantly better. They really have to stick with it. And unfortunately, uh, often they'll cause nausea, particularly in the first fortnight. So people will, will often feel worse when they start on medication. If they can get through that initial feeling, then, then it does help and it, it has a high success rate. There's a lot of controversy about whether antidepressants are addictive. Um, and that's certainly something that a lot of patients express concerns to me. Initially, it was thought that they, they weren't at all. The feeling now is that particularly if you've been on them for a long time, then you should come off them gradually. Otherwise, you will get withdrawal effects. I don't know if, if you want to comment on that, Andrew. So 
one of the key things about medication is that stopping it suddenly may cause problems if you've been on it for a long time. And we're now recognizing something called a discontinuation syndrome. And that's certainly something where you should, if you do experience it, you should share that with your doctor and ask for help. And we do recognize that it's not a question of taking an antidepressant, feeling better for a week and then stopping it. Really, if you have started one, you should be on it for several months, maybe six months uh, of being well. Once you've improved to to back to normal again, um, and many of us would not want to stop an antidepressant in December or January, or want our patients to stop them. Then it's it's worth waiting until the brighter months. I suppose one of the key things to look out for is that. For people who are severely depressed, they need people with them as well when they're starting antidepressants because sometimes motivation returns before mood lifts. And the last thing that we want is that um, anybody's motivation should, and their energy should return at a time when they're actually feeling suicidal thoughts. And so somebody with severe depression really does need personal contact and help and support as well. I don't know if you'd agree with that, Peter. Absolutely. It's uh, particularly in younger people, for some reason, it, it actually increases the suicide risk for precisely the reasons you say. Um, and I'd completely agree that the general view is stay on them until you felt completely well for six months. And of course, drug therapy, talking therapists, they're not mutually ex- exclusive. It's often helpful to, to take a tablet to lift your mood sufficiently that you've got the motivation to engage in the talking therapist and then using the talking therapies to get your mood more stable so that you're able to come off medication without slipping back. Indeed. And in Somerset, we're lucky um, not only to have very good primary care and to have secondary care available, and we can refer ourselves to talking therapies through the Somerset Talking Therapy Service, and uh, that's available through the Somerset Foundation website. But I believe there's also Mindline, Peter, which is a a front door to help people um, enter the mental health services. Absolutely. So 01823 2768. 92 is their number. They're a 24 7 service, a, uh, a newly 24 7 service, and they are able to cope with anyone with any mental health distress or problem. Uh, we're, we're trying to have this no wrong door policy where people won't be turned away. If, if they feel they need help, contact my line. It's not the first time we've given the number and it won't be the last. Thank you, Peter. And of course, if anybody, uh, any of our listeners do feel very distressed um, or feel upset or ever feel in desperation, please, please, please remember the Samaritans are available throughout Britain and uh, free from a mobile, free from all phones on 116123 uh, or um, text uh, uh, or email on joe at samaritans.org. uh, if in crisis, also call 111. Uh, and we certainly would recommend that people in desperation also may need to be seen in the emergency department. Um, but please, 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 um, we wouldn't want anyone to suffer in desperation with awful thoughts without asking for help. I think people should recognise that mental health crises are every bit as serious Uh, as physical health crises and need to be taken as seriously. And depression to me is potentially, uh, although we've talked about the spectrum, one of the most serious mental health problems that that you can have. 
and needs to be dealt with as seriously uh, as a heart attack. Thank you. And the good news is for everyone that actually the great majority of people, we, we have emphasised the serious end just so that nobody's missed, but the great majority of people do very well. Uh, and even if even if somebody you know or you are suffering from serious depression, it can be helped and it will get better. And I'm sure in our, our medical practice, Peter, as junior doctors, we have seen some really fascinating things um, where lives have been saved almost unexpectedly, um, but uh, I don't think we should necessarily share those anecdotes because they may be recognised, but uh, we've seen lives saved, which is really quite exciting. And certainly I've had family members who have been helped, my grandmother and others, um, by medical therapy and by treatment and by medication. And I've seen hundreds, um, possibly thousands of patients, certainly over the years, who have been helped greatly by medication and by therapy. So it's not the same uh, as an infection um, which is treated by antibiotics, but it is the same in that it is a medical treatment, sorry, it is a medical condition that does need help and does need effective diagnosis and treatment. And the help is there, as, as you say, very effective. The, the talking therapies have been looked at in the same way that we would look at drug therapy and the most effective talking therapies are, are, being, are being used now. So people, as you say, can not only recover from it, but sometimes actually come through the experience of depression, feeling stronger, having learned life skills that will stand them in good stead for the future, uh, and, and having more empathy with other people who are going through mental health problems. And if you do choose to seek help, please write down what you're going to say beforehand, because certainly as practitioners, as doctors, we've often seen people who don't really disclose their, the level of distress until the second or third time that we see them because they feel embarrassed or they feel ashamed or they, they just, for some reason, don't get round to it when they, it, actually it's the most important thing that they want to tell us about, but they don't actually manage to on that occasion. And again, one of the most positive things I think that's happened over the last few years is that people are readier to talk about their feelings. So you, you have very high-profile people like Stephen Fry who talk openly uh, about their depression and uh, a number of uh, celebrities and footballers. So men in particular often find it difficult to talk about emotions uh, and are reluctant to tell their doctor. But yes, I, I would absolutely encourage people to, to tell people if they feel they have depression because it can be helped. Thank you. And uh, connecting with others is important. Connecting with the medical services is really important. You mentioned uh, men briefly there. Um, there's a after, after the economic crisis in Ireland, just as we moved for close, uh, there was something that started called the Men's Shed Movement. And uh, this is because, and this is a huge stereotype, but on the whole... Um, women are better at talking to each other or talking to others and seeking help that way, whereas men stereotypically may find themselves suffering in silence and, and not um, talking. However, men will engage in activities with others, and hence the Men's Sheds movement. Uh, and I'm privileged to be a medical officer to the West Somerset Railway, which I would say is a gigantic not just a men's shed, because we have 20% uh, or 30% women as volunteers, although uh, not so many of the engine drivers and firemen uh, are, are, are women, but it's, it's a great men's shed, and there are many other um, examples 
of where we can get involved in volunteering or in other activities which make us feel valued, valuable, and have social contact and lift our mood. Human beings are social creatures and we respond to that stimulus of interaction with others. Absolutely. Peter, thank you very much. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you very much, Andrew. You've been listening to the Somerset Emotional Wellbeing Podcast, hosted by Dr. Andrew Tresider and Dr. Peter Bagshaw. The show was created by David Seeley and was produced by Rob Hunt's Music on behalf of the Somerset Clinical Commissioning Group.